1963, the Kennedy administration created the Emergency Broadcast System. It gave the president a means of addressing the nation in the event of a nuclear attack. Thankfully, the system was never used for that purpose. But it did leave a legacy. If you lived in the 1960s like me, you remember this experience. You'd be watching television when suddenly a test pattern with strange symbols and configurations suddenly appeared on the screen, followed by a shrill, high-pitched siren. And then a voice that said, This is a test. If this was an actual emergency, you would have been instructed to tune in to one of the broadcast stations in your area. This is only a test. Now, as a young boy living at the height of the Cold War, in the wake of the Cuban Missile Crisis... I got to admit, whenever that announcement ran on the television, it produced in me a tinge of fear. Is this the one? Could this be it? Is this for real? The most comforting words were that phrase, this is only a test. And when difficulty strikes in my life today, it's vital that I remember this phrase, this is a test. This is only a test. If this were an actual emergency, you know, all too often what we assume are emergencies are really just tests. Understand, God is not surprised when my life encounters adversity. God doesn't hit the panic button. God isn't puzzled and groping to make sense of my situation. The living God is in charge of all of life, good and bad. He's in control of the very circumstances that are currently stressing you out. In fact, if you listen closely this morning, you'll probably hear God saying to you, this is not an actual emergency. This is a test. It's only a test. Peter learned this truth at the foot of the cross. You know, we're approaching the Easter season. And for most folks, the cross is an emotional experience. It should be. Contemplate the cross, what Jesus endured, its intensity and its totality. It stirs the emotions. It reminds us that the cost of forgiveness is steep. It's expensive. The cross stirs our passions at Mount Calvary. Grown men choke back tears. But hopefully, that's not all we learn at the cross. For the person who stands there long enough to look through the tears and look past the emotions... For them, the cross becomes a tutor in spiritual truth. The crucifixion revolutionizes our perspective on pain and trials. Jesus on the cross challenges faulty assumptions. It gives us strategic insight. You see, this is what the cross did for Peter. From the beginning, he believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But his concept of what the Messiah had come to do was transformed at Calvary's cross. Peter knew that one day Messiah would reign and rule. But the necessity of the cross proved to Peter that grieving precedes glory. And that death comes before life. And that pain ultimately blossoms into pleasure. In short, Peter learned that trials are necessary. Faith has to be tested It has to be refined through the fires of hardship. 
You see, if suffering of the cross was a part of God's plan for his own son Jesus, Peter realized that pain and suffering would also be a feature in God's plan for him. And let me add, God's plan for you. In fact, Peter got a place, got to a place in his life where he actually appreciated the crosses and the trials. He embraced them. He thanked God for them. He even rejoiced in them. And he wants us to do likewise. Rejoice in the hardship God allows. This is what he tells us here in verse 6 when he writes, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What a message indeed. Now as a pastor, I deal with people's trials almost on a daily basis. And you know, it's true. Life is hard. You know, sometimes our sin makes life harder than it has to be. But life is tough even when you do right. In fact, at times, life becomes tougher when you choose to do right. Life is full of surprises and many of them are unpleasant. I know Christians who experience a setback or two and they act shocked that it could happen to them. They respond as if somehow faith in Jesus exempts us from this type of trouble. I found that just the opposite is true. Real faith is a lightning rod for hardship. Faith has to be tested. And when faith gets tested, it's easy to react the wrong way. You remember Job's friends, they try to condemn him as if he had committed a specific sin that warranted his calamity. This is the worst mistake we can make. Imagine a believer's faith is being tested. God is doing what's necessary to cause him to grow. And we interpret it as punishment? Well, that's a cruelty indeed. Other people, though, they act glibly. They they see a friend that's going through the grinder. His kids hate him. His wife leaves him. His own dog bites him. He's been denied the promotion at work because of his faith in Christ. And then we come along and we tell him something like, Well, just pray about it, brother. Or, Or have you tried reading a psalm every day? Or why don't you take some vitamin C? What does vitamin C have to do with it? It's like prescribing salt tablets to a cancer patient. It's very little help. In fact, if you're suffering and you read a psalm every day, I hope you get to the right ones. Because a lot of the psalms are spewing angst and erupting with vengeance and retaliation. They were written by people in far worse shape than you. You see, how does Peter react to trials and suffering? He's not glib. He's not cruel. He's just honest. He's not trite, but he's truthful. A person who's going through it needs a big dose of honesty. It's clarity that helps us. And Peter provides us some here in verse 6. He states four truths about trials. First, trials are momentary. Notice Peter's wording. He says, though now for a little while. (laughs) If you're going through a trial, understand it's not going to last forever. 
In this life, trials are a constant indeed, but there is more to our existence than just this life. I hope you realize life is so, so short. This is my son Max, senior year at South Gwinnett, and he's playing baseball. And the other night, the boys were doing the post-game cleanup, and Mac was on the tractor dragging the infield, and I was up in the press box, and, and I just sat there. I just watched him. And I just thought to myself, where did the time go? Just yesterday, he was out playing in the dirt in the backyard. You know, life is like a puff of warm breath on a winter's day. It's here one second, and then it's gone the next. And compared to eternity, it's even shorter. I mean, in light of eternity, the weeks or the months or the years you're enduring right now are just a blip on the screen. Hey, if you suffered for your whole 70 years, spent your whole life in pain, then died and went to heaven a thousand years from now, those first 70 years will feel pretty negligible. You know, a person says, I've had a hard life. Well, be glad you just had a hard life. Big deal. It's just life. You know, when a soldier dies in battle or when a martyr dies for their faith, it reminds us that there are more important things than just life. The Bible teaches us that there's far more to living than just this life. There's a heaven and there's a hell. What you really want to avoid is a hard eternity. I love the little old lady who was asked one day to name her favorite Bible verse. She replied, oh, that's easy. Luke chapter 2 verse 1, and it came to pass. She said, I'm so glad it came to pass and it didn't come to stay. Just remember, trials and suffering are momentary. But notice the second truth about trials. They're also mandatory. Peter tells us that trials come, and I quote him, if need be. Apparently, God deems them necessary. It is the only way that we can learn certain lessons. I'm fond of this saying. It takes the manure for us to mature. And indeed, it does. <laughs> you know, realize, if there was any way for God to save us without Jesus suffering on the cross, God would have chosen that method. But there was only one solution for our sin. The cross was absolutely necessary. And so are the crosses in our lives. The trials and the sufferings that we're called on to bear, they're for a reason. There are lessons that God knows that we could never learn without experiencing some pain and some unpleasant circumstances. Remember, it grieved the Father to sacrifice His Son. And it pains God to watch you and I endure hardship. He gets no pleasure from this either. The only reason He tolerates suffering is for its redeeming value. There are some truths we would never ever grasp unless they came with a test. When God calls on us to suffer, we may never learn the whole reason, but we can be sure that our trial is essential to the accomplishment of God's purposes. Well, here's the third truth about trials. They produce misery. <laughs> They're no fun. Peter says that we are grieved by trials. Did you know it's okay for Christians to grieve? I hope you realize that it's okay for Christians to hurt. 
Grief is not a sin. Feelings like disappointment and discouragement and sorrow and frustration and even anger, they're not sins. It's okay to be bummed out from time to time. We're living in a fallen world. Sometimes we get the impression that Christians are supposed to be like Vulcans. Like Dr. Spock. Void of expression and emotion and passion. It's if, as if the whole church is on Ritalin. God calls us to be dedicated, not medicated. You know, there's a pastor in Houston, Texas. He leads the largest church in the country. But he refuses to say anything negative to his congregation. He never talks about sin or grief or trials or suffering. Obviously, he's not reading the Bible. Open your Bible. Read it. God's Word is full of good, godly people who endure some pretty miserable conditions. And as a Christian, you'll have your moments when you're vexed and you're ruffled and you're agitated and you're stretched and you're grieved. Well, trials can be miserable. And notice the fourth truth about trials. Peter tells his readers that they're being grieved by various trials or manifold trials. Trials are manifold. The old King James Version, various trials... They use this phrase, manifold trials. The Greek word that Peter actually used meant variegated or multicolored. He's saying that trials come in different styles and shapes and sizes and starts. You know, some trials are the results of our own sin. Sometimes we're innocent victims. Through no fault of our own, a loved one can cause a trial that we have to address. Still other times, we're the targets of Satan's Daggers and his devil's attempts to thwart our faith. I'll never forget the retreat that Kathy and I, we took to the mountains. We just got away for a few days. We had a wonderful time until the last day. I accidentally sat down on a wasp. Stung me right in the tush. And my, oh my, did it hurt. I was sick for the next three days. Every joint in my body ached, all due to a tiny little wasp. Actually, I always suspected that it was a yellow jacket. (laughs) They'll do it to you sometimes. Sometimes trials sneak up on you. We don't even know they're there until they sting. At other times, trials, they loom large. They're all we can see. Trials come from folks we know. Trials come from folks we don't know. Trials come in a wide variety of forms, and they strike in different ways. Peter says, beware of these various trials. But notice what Peter says in verse 7. It's important to us. For all trials, they come for the same purpose. He says that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, Though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The testing of our faith purifies us and refines us. Peter uses the illustration here of a goldsmith. He turns up the heat. He melts down the gold. And then he skims the impurities off of the top. 
He repeats the procedure over and over until finally he can see his reflection in the surface of the metal. That's when he knows that the gold is as pure as possible. And this is how Jesus works in us, isn't it? He turns up the heat in our life, the heat of adversity. He turns it up a few degrees. He begins to melt our pride and our self-sufficiency. And then he skims off the impurities of our character. And the process gets repeated over and over again until the likeness of Jesus is formed in us. Listen to the poet's description of the refiner's work. He sat by a furnace of sevenfold heat as he watched the precious ore. The closer he bent with a searching gaze, he heated it more and more. He knew that he had ore that could stand the test, and he wanted the finest of gold to mold as a crown for the king set with gems of a price untold. And so he laid out gold in the burning fire, though he wanted his hand to stay, and he watched the dross we hadn't seen melt and pass away. As the gold grew brighter, our eyes were dim with tears. We saw the fire, not the master's hand, and we questioned with anxious fears. Our gold shone with a richer glow as it mirrored his form above. Though unseen by us, he bent over the fire with looks of indescribable love. Can we think it pleases his loving heart to cause us a moment of pain? Ah, no. But we saw through the present loss the bliss of eternal gain. So he waited with a watchful eye, with a, with a love so strong and sure, and his goal did not suffer a bit more heat than was needed to make it pure. And this, my friend, is what moves me. I'm moved by this last line. His goal did not suffer a bit more heat than was needed to make it pure. Maybe today you're in the crucible of trouble. God is testing the genuineness of your faith. Sure, you'll serve God when he blesses, when life is good. But what happens in the heat of adversity? How genuine is your faith? How sincere is your devotion? Tom was 15 and little Johnny was 11 when Tom decided to bless his brother. Tom had built a big fort out in the backyard. Oh, my. He and his friends, they'd built a masterpiece. It was the envy of the whole neighborhood. But you see, a 15-year-old, he, he moves on to adult concerns. And so one Christmas season, Tom told his brother it was time for him to take possession of the fort. Johnny got so excited. Wow, what he and his friends would do with this fort. But then on Christmas Eve, Tom dropped the bombshell. He said he'd changed his mind. He was keeping the fort. Maybe he'd reconsider next year. The little 11-year-old, he was crushed. His first impulse was to cry or to throw a temper tantrum. But he stuffed down his fears and said what he only could, okay. But on Christmas morning, there was a gift for Johnny from his 15-year-old brother. It was the key to that fort. And when Johnny saw the unexpected key, he spun around and he saw Tom grinning. The older brother explained the surprise. He says, it was a test to see if you could really handle it. And you can. This is what God is doing in our lives through trials. He's testing the genuineness and the sincerity of our faith. Are we ready for the good stuff he wants to pour out on us? Can we handle the blessings he's earmarked for you and me? 
Or do we need a little more refinement? Should he turn up the heat again and repeat the process? Peter says in verse 7, the goal is to be ready at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The trials in our life have been neatly stacked. They've been prearranged so that when Jesus returns, we'll be ready. And speaking of Jesus, notice verse 8. Whom having not seen, you love. You remember while walking on the water, Peter learned that the key to surviving the storms was to keep your eyes on Jesus. But what if he's not seen? Well, what if you can't see him? Reminds me of the college freshman, first day in science class. The professor walks in, he says, all who believe in Jesus, stand up. The freshman rose to his feet. The prof- professor continued, he said, can you feel or see or smell or taste or hear your God? The freshman replied, no sir. The prof snarled, he said, then you sit down for your God does not exist. The new student was unmoved. He addressed the professor. He said, sir, may I ask you a question? Can you feel or see or smell or taste or hear or see your brain? The cocky professor said, of course not. And the student answered, well, then please sit down for your brain does not exist. Hey, you get the point. We all believe in realities that that we can't relate to just with our five senses. Love and loyalty and and humor and commitment and patriotism. These are invisible realities, but we know they exist. Likewise with Jesus. We, We can't relate to Jesus tangibly or physically, but we sense His presence and His love in our hearts, and we can love Him in return. Helen Keller once said, The best and most beautiful things in life cannot be seen or even touched. They must be felt with the heart. This is true of spiritualities, realities. We've never seen Jesus, but that doesn't stop us from knowing Him and touching Him and loving Him. It's a shallow person who limits what he believes to only what he can see with his eyes or place under a microscope. He's a narrow thinker. Faith opens up vistas to go beyond mere sight and sound. Skeptics use the term blind faith, but faith is anything but blind Faith sees more, not less. It observes spiritual realities, heavenly, eternal beauty. I like what C.H. Spurgeon once said, Little faith will take your soul to heaven, but great faith will bring heaven to your soul. Peter says in verse 8, Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. While Jesus was on earth, his disciples were overwhelmed with joy. Boy, what it would have been like to be with Jesus. It was a 24-7 feast. It was a perpetual party. What a rush it was to see Jesus at work day to day. In fact, in Mark chapter 2, Jesus compares him and his disciples to newlyweds at a reception. He says, living with Jesus was, was similar to the giddiness of lovebirds. Free birds turn lovebirds. There they are. But now Peter no longer sees Jesus. He follows his Lord not by sight but by faith. And yet life is just as fun and thrilling as it was while Jesus was on earth. Peter still rejoices with a joy he can't describe. His life is still full of glory. 
When Jesus departed, the rejoicing never stopped. So what kept the party going? Jesus was no longer seen, but he continued to be sensed. What continued to fuel the fire of their joy? The answer, the Holy Spirit. For it was the Spirit who took up where Jesus left off. In the scripture, the Holy Spirit is described as new wine. He brings joy and laughter and vitality to life. He is the divine bubbly. He adds sparkle. The Holy Spirit is the believer's buzz. He's the source of our joy. On the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit was poured out on the disciples, they received, quote, joy inexpressible and full of glory. That's the way Peter remembered it. And if you want a joy that baffles description, ask Jesus to fill you with the Holy Spirit. This morning, before you leave, ask Jesus to fill you with the Holy Spirit. You ask Him, He'll do it. Before you leave today, ask Him. The Spirit will reveal Jesus to you if you believe. And don't just have faith. Don't just believe. Continue in your faith. Continue in your belief. Peter tells us in verse 9, Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. For here's what can happen. You see, a person is coached to Christ. They're converted. Their sin and their need for the Savior can combine to stir up a faith in Jesus. But then that faith gets tested. And it's inevitable. He or she gets tested. And if they're not ready for the test, or if they misinterpret the test, faith gets derailed. You see, if you assume that Jesus died on the cross to end all your troubles or to make your life a bed of roses, then the trial you face means that he's failed to live up to his end of the deal. And if that's your assumption, your faith is going to fizzle. Your faith is going to grow flatter than a three-week-old bottle of Coca-Cola. Faith needs to remember that even though the trial is causing us some grief, it's only a test. It's not a real emergency. It's a test. And at best, it lasts just a little while. And it's absolutely needed. For the trial is refining our faith. In fact, I'll go one step further this morning. I'm going to push you this morning. You need to ditch your baby faith and you need to develop a grown-up faith. I'm issuing you a challenge. Your faith doesn't just need to remember, it needs to rejoice. You need to greatly rejoice for the trial that God is allowing is purposeful. It's purposeful in your life. Understand, this is the essence of Christian faith. For at the cross we learned that grieving precedes glory and pain blossoms into pleasure and life springs from death. But if you don't believe it in your own life, how can you say you have faith? Without seeing, we believe. Having not seen, we love. When you scan the surface of your life and all you see is trouble, you need to dive deeper. And you need to find the living Lord Jesus. You need to plug into the power of the Holy Spirit in your heart. And rejoice with a joy inexpressible and full of glory. Peter is pleading us, pleading with us not to allow the trials of life to trip up our faith. And to steal our joy. 
He's telling us that with a little faith, we can learn to see our trials as even reasons to rejoice. And this is why it's not enough to just start in faith. We should finish in faith. For Peter tells us to desire the end of our faith, the salvation of our soul. You know, the New Testament speaks of salvation in different phases. When we first trust in Jesus, we're saved from the penalty of sin. As we grow, we're saved from the power of sin. When we reach heaven, we'll be saved from this wicked world and the predicament of sin. But at every stage, the key is faith. See, faith is not a one-time deal. Faith is like a muscle. You feed it, and you grow it, and you exercise it. And if you don't, it withers and it dies. Peter assures us, cultivate your faith, and it will eventually bring to pass the salvation of your soul. And then he speaks of our salvation again in verse 10. He says, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what? Or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when He testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Peter adds here that our salvation is the same salvation foretold by the Old Testament prophets. Hebrew holy men predicted the time and the sufferings and the glories of the coming Messiah. They were all fulfilled by Jesus. 300 prophecies. Plus some identified Jesus as the Messiah. Micah 5 predicted Jesus' birthplace. Daniel 9, the very day he came to Israel. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 were written by men living hundreds of years before Jesus. Yet their eyewitness reports of his sufferings on the cross. Isaiah 65 and 66 as well as other verses describe his future glory. Peter concludes here in verse 12. To these prophets it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they are ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. God ministered to the prophets with future generations in mind. Not just to the Jews in time past and in faraway locales, but they wrote to you and to me. To us today. And you know what? We're not their only audience. For Peter finishes here in verse 12 by labeling the Old Testament prophecies as things which angels desire to look into. Do you realize that angels are intrigued by our salvation? That there are cherubim and seraphim this morning sitting around wondering why God has gone to such great extremes to forgive and refine the likes of us. Apparently, a a favorite angel pastime is to just try to figure out why God loves those little humans so much. Over the eons, angels have marveled at the mystery of God's love for the little mud daubers called man. Think about it. We were made from the dirt. We go back to the dirt. Though we've been stamped with God's image all too often, we're dirty in the way we live and in the way we think. I'm sure that to majestic angels, we're pretty unimpressive. Angels are puzzled why God would suffer and die for one of us. And here's the big takeaway 
from today's passage. Angels desire to look into salvation. But that's all they can do is look, probe, contemplate. They can't participate. For salvation is not for angels. Those who rebelled, those who failed and followed Satan, they're lost forever. Salvation is for us and for our friends. And this is why we can't lose out. This is why we can't miss this opportunity to have faith in and to know Jesus. Angels, they envy the love that God has shown us and the access he's offered to us. It boggles their minds that God treats us with such goodness. They blow a gasket then when they see us reject God's grace. And Peter knows the number one obstacle to faith is suffering. He's trying to tell us this morning, don't let trials trip you up. We need clarity. We need to remember the cross. And we need to rejoice that the genuineness of our faith is tested by fire that it may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Oh yes, trials are manifold. And trials are pretty miserable. But trials are mandatory if we want to grow. And never forget, trials are momentary. That helps too. When life gets really hard, remember the cross and rejoice in the truth that this is a test. This is not an actual emergency. Your trial is only a test.